What is going on? Happy Monday. Happy Thanksgiving. Another edition of Canucks Talk here on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. My co-host is Canucks insider Thomas Strantz, who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team. AvenueMachinery.ca, DouglasLakeEquipment.com. Drancer, happy Thanksgiving to you, and also I think maybe even uh, the bigger highlight for you, happy NHL deadline, a roster deadline day to you as well. A, a favorite day of mine, not enough to offset the disappointment of this weekend from a Blue Jays perspective, <laughs> but uh, but so it goes. Let's not talk about that. Congrats to all the Mariners fans listening. We're happy for you. Yeah, I'm glad we got to do the preview show on Friday and not the, uh, the post-mortem show today. But yes, shout out to the Mariners fans. Uh, I had Thanksgiving <laughs> dinner with some Mariners fans in my family yesterday, and they were good sports about it. So uh, congratulations on that one. Moving on, moving on quickly from that. Uh, a lot to unpack here for the Canucks, not just because it is roster deadline day, and that deadline is at 2 o'clock, so just as our show is ending, we can already glean and read between the lines a little bit of what we're going to see from the Canucks in, turn, in terms of setting their opening day roster. And we'll talk about that throughout the course of the show. But of course, on Friday, uh, during the game, during the final preseason game against Arizona, the Canucks make a trade. This is our first chance to really break it down and dive into it. They sent Jason Dickinson and a second round pick to Chicago for Riley Stillman, left-handed defenseman uh, who Patrick Alvin characterized as a, a third pairing type defender. There's a lot to unpack in this move. Drance, a lot of different ramifications. Uh, I think maybe some things to like, some things not to like, certainly from my perspective anyways, about the deal. What was your reaction? And as you've had a chance to kind of chew on it a little bit, uh, maybe work the phones a little bit, what's your perspective overall on this deal right now? We'll get Drance reconnected momentarily here. It's possible he just has the old microphone on mute. We call that the uh, the Satyar Shah around these parts at Sportsnet 650. But we will get Drancer quickly back on the line here on a Thanksgiving Monday. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street and Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. You can send in your thoughts about the trade that we saw over the weekend, how the Canucks wrapped up the preseason, your thoughts going in to the beginning of the regular season. And if you do have any questions about exactly how things are going to come together from a roster standpoint, what they have to do, who are they going to send down, how do they maximize their cap space, hit us up with those as well. Again, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line because uh, we are really going to get into the nitty-gritty of that. You know Drance loves to get into the nitty-gritty cap stuff. Uh, we'll do that later in the show. I should also say Jeff Merrick, host of the Jeff Merrick show here uh, on Sportsnet 650 and across the Sportsnet radio network. He will join us at 1230. We'll get his perspective on the Canucks in their offseason a little bit as well. But while we wait to get Drance back on the line, back to the Stillman Dickinson deal. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more with Drance about exactly what the Canucks are getting in Riley Stillman, you know, why they prioritized uh, acquiring him in the Jason Dickinson move. Obviously, it helps them shed a little bit of cap. I don't love the price, though. And just really for a team in this position, you know, which, again, I would say I'm relatively optimistic about the Canucks this year, and I still have them as a team very much fighting on the playoff bubble, far from a guarantee to get in the playoffs, let alone to go on a deep run. For a team in that position to give up a second-round pick for the 
relatively minimal cap savings that they got, and especially at this time of year where, yeah, it can help them put their first uh, their opening day roster together, but you don't get as much benefit from having cap space right now as you would have earlier in the summer. The second round pick is really tough for me to see going the other way in this deal. So we welcome Thomas Drance back into the conversation. Drance, I was just teeing you up for your kind of overall perspective now that we've had a little bit of time to chew on the trade we saw on Friday. Yeah, on well, hearing the end of your answer there, I, I think you are right. Like, this is one of those trades where if they'd made it in June, you know, yeah, I would have said, well, that's the cost of inheriting this cat mess, right? But instead, they do it after having already made significant commitments to players like Mikhaev and then obviously the JT Miller extension. And instead, it feels like it's a more reactive move, right? A, a move that they sort of backed into as a result of you know, a, a variety of factors. One being the compounding issues of injuries and how much that complicated the club's you know, cap picture leading up to today, 2 p.m., when they have to set their opening day roster. And also, you know, I think the uh, additional sort of desire that the club had to get Stillman, right? I mean, there is an element to which Stillman was a player they felt fit that, you know, U26 defender mold uh, that they think they need, and I think they feel like they need to be tougher up and down the lineup, particularly after what they saw last week uh, in Abbotsford against the Edmonton Oilers. So that's those are some of the factors that I think bring it about. But, I, I mean, personally, my view of it anyway is, you know, you'd made it this far without trading future-oriented assets for cap space, and to do it now... You know, I do think there's significant diminishing returns in the value of, of clearing that space today versus earlier in the summer. And I don't know that the deal would have been necessary if they'd been a little bit more disciplined in what they committed and spent over the course of the summer. Um, you know, I additionally don't like trading relatively high value picks. Like, I don't like seeing a team trade relatively high value picks, even if it's just a second rounder a year from now, as opposed to, you know, something even even better than that. Uh, when they're not poised to really contend, you know, it's one thing to make this deal when you're an annual contender pressed up against the upper limit to make it when you're, you know, a mid 90s sort of expectation team in terms of points uh, that that feels uh, a lot less like feels worse to me by by an awful lot. And I'm sure it feels a lot worse to so several Canucks fans who'd love to see this organization take the longer view. Well, there's a few things that kind of I, I have a tough time wrapping my head around with the deal. And one is, yeah, it, it feels like they're paying a premium for the relatively minimal cap savings and they're getting less out of them. Right. Compared to, as you said, if they had done the deal in June and you could compare what they gave up uh, to get those cap savings versus what some other teams have given up in relative relatively recently and at the beginning of the offseason. And it, they certainly didn't get a bargain. Now you have to factor in the fact that they do like Stillman as a player. It's not as if he's a pure salary cap dump. They plan to use him. They see a desire for him. You do have to factor that in. But still, it's not as if it's these massive cap savings uh, that they're getting. It's hard for me to also square it with the comments we've heard about, you know, how unwilling they've been to move assets in order to clear cap space, right? And then all of a sudden, well, actually, now we are a little bit willing uh, to do it. And again, maybe part of that comes down to the specific uh, characteristics that Stillman brings. But still, if you were going to be, if you were going to go down the road of, hey, we're going to trade a pretty valuable asset, a second round pick in order to free up some calorie, salary cap space, I think it would have made sense to explore that 
a lot earlier than now, now so, to give yourself a little sorry, bit more sorry. flexibility. Go ahead. What what deals are you looking at where you're saying they th- you think they didn't get a bargain in terms of the price of shedding the salary? Well, I would look at the Zach Cassian one to uh, to from Edmonton to Arizona. Right? Yeah, but that was a first, a third, and a second. I thought it was a second and a third. A uh, 29th overall pick, right? Oh, okay, okay. 2024 third and a 2025 second. But I guess the, it was a trade down. So it was a third and a second yeah. for Cassian and then three pick trade down in the first. Okay, so that's why. Um, yeah, okay. So, I mean, it, that seems like a relatively uh, – that I mean, they put, paid more to shed Cassian, the Oilers did, than the Canucks did to uh, shed Dickinson, albeit the Canucks also took back – They took back uh, salary. You know, a salary, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but and I'm not. Them, I'm not saying they got ripped off from that perspective, but no, it wasn't no. as if the price came down significantly, and that's what changed their mind. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They paid market value. Yeah. They paid market value, but I think they viewed it as also acquiring a player that they think they can use. You know, and uh, Riley Stillman's a really impressive kid. Uh, I'm not. I don't personally see him as a guy with more than third pair. You know, maybe four or five upside. He can maybe get to that point. Um, I'm a little bit concerned about the acquisition in that while I like the person a ton and and I think there's you know some interesting elements to the player. I always like acquiring a defensive de- type defender or or a tough minute centerman from a really bad team, right? Like I always like those deals mm-hmm. because often in a more structured environment, uh, those players can can level up a bit. But it's not like the Canucks are a much more structured environment. Say, first of oh, all, more structure, you say. <laughs> Yeah. And, and and secondly, and secondly, you know, I worry a little bit because Stillman's issues are the Canucks' issues, you know, in, in some ways. Um, moving the puck, right? Tri- tr- connecting play. Uh, attacking as a five-man unit with, with the defenders contributing to that attack, right? Like, those are things you're not going to get from him. What you are going to get from him, though, is a really high-character human being and a guy who you know, is a willing fighter, can throw the big hit, um, can be a little bit harder to play against. And I think that factor loomed really large after the Canucks got beat up in the alley a little bit, even though they won the game, by the Edmonton Oilers in in Abbotsford, right? Like, I think that's a a significant factor in why they ultimately went and, uh, and targeted Stillman. And, you know, I think Stillman now sort of one of the other interesting things about this is I, I sort of think Stillman leapfrogs Jack Rathbone mm-hmm. on the depth chart a little bit, right? Uh, like I would expect that it Stillman is the first choice sort of third uh, LD, um, you know, as it stands going into the season. And really, I think they'd probably be looking at in their mind's eye anyway, something like Stillman Dermot with Dermot bumping over to the right side. Once everyone is healthy again, um, you know, I, I know we haven't really seen what that looks like yet at Canucks practice, partly because of Quinn Hughes uh, being absent due to an illness. Uh, Bruce Boudreau disclosed. I, I sort of heard scuttlebutt earlier today that um, the Canucks w- aren't particularly concerned, although obviously anything can change when it comes to uh, hockey injuries, but are, weren't particularly concerned about Hughes' status for opening night. So that's good news. Uh, matches what Boudreau told the media today at Canucks practice. But yeah, I mean, I think, this sort of creates a tough path for Rathbone to get into the lineup, particularly in the event that Hughes is healthy. Yeah, and that's an interesting part of it for me as well because I've been pretty high on Jack Rathbone, and I think they need his upside in the lineup, and this creates a complication. Now, I don't think it's the case that, oh, well, Rathbone's going to go down to Abbotsford, and that's where he's going to play this year. He's still going to figure in, but 
I think they need to find a way to get the most out of Jack Rathbone sooner rather than later, which is not to say that Stillman can't bring other things to the table. And, you know, I agree with your point about I've seen people sharing some of his kind of fancy stats, underlying numbers, and they didn't look great in Chicago, even relative to uh, the numbers on a, a bad Blackhawks team generally last year. I always kind of take that with a grain of salt, right? Even if even if they're bad relative to the rest of the team, it's just so hard to evaluate players in that context. So I think Stillman can help them. But if it comes at the expense of a guy with the skill set like Rathbone that they kind of desperately need in the lineup, somebody who can skate, somebody can move at the puck, I, I think it's a little bit of a case of diminishing returns. And this text comes in, 650-650. Uh, to the Dunbar Lumber text line. Uh, Nate from Comox says, Serious Cup contenders trade two second rounders for Devontae's. Pretenders trade a third for Dickinson and a second to get rid of him. That's Nate from Comox. And I think just probably the most frustrating thing about this trade that I've seen a lot of Canucks fans voice, similar to what Nate from Comox said, is just it seems to continue this cycle of, you know, you make a bet that doesn't go the right way. It prevents you from improving your team because he's on the books as a, a, a taking up salary cap space over the summer, and then you give up assets to move them, right? So it's it hurts you in the present because they're on your books and preventing you from doing things to really take advantage of cap space, and then you have to give up future assets. And obviously, it's you know that was what we saw writ large with the Beagle Roussel Erickson deal uh, that saw OEL and Connor Garland come back, and it just feels like at a certain point. For this team to really be successful and really improve and really become legitimate contenders, that cycle has to end. And I understand, you know, Patrick Alvin wasn't the guy who made the bet on Jason Dickinson initially. There might have to be some really tough decisions made where you do have to give up assets to free up that space. But I also understand why a lot of Canucks fans look at it and say, man, this is just this is more of the same, more of what they have seen an awful lot of. And it doesn't feel great. Well, and and again, it would be one thing if they'd come in and made a series of, of moves that were painful to clear cap space, right? But by doubling down on the group the way that new management has, like this is they, they have ownership now too of Vancouver's complicated books, right? It's not on them, but they have ownership of it because they haven't sort of conducted the dramatic moves or the dramatic cap clearing deals required to put themselves in a different situation. You know what I mean? You you don't get to commit money to an additional UFA forward and extend a 29-year-old uh, center, even if he's your leading scorer, and then be like, oh, man, these cap problems we inherited. You know, like at some point, at some point, too, this is they, they signed off to some extent on the construction of this team with their actions this summer, which I think makes it a little more complicated to just be like, well, man, that's a mistake they inherited. You know, it's not, it, it can't be that simple. Like it, there has to be an understanding too, that they've plowed their way um, through in some ways consistent with the, the team building direction of what they inherited when they uh, took over Jim Rutherford in early December and Patrick Alvin in late January uh, of last season. So, you know, that's that's something you got to keep in mind. Dickinson, let's let's do the quick um, sure, the postmortem. Like, solilo the soliloquy for Dickinson's <laughs> short-lived ignominious Canucks career. from a tidy bit of business to <laughs> traded with a second round pick to yeah. Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> it, hashtag #tbob. Look, I still like the trade. I never liked the bet on the contract. And, you know, I always liked Dickinson as a defensive player, and I suspect he'll bounce back a bit in Chicago. I suspect he would have bounced back a bit here in Vancouver if he'd remained. But, you know, he, there was this view that he might level up offensively with this team around him. 
similar to what they'd seen when they had acquired uh, JT Miller, frankly, right? Uh, we're going to give him a more regular role. He's going to play with better players. He's going to produce more. We got to lock this in before that happens. And I sort of never really believed in the Jason Dickinson offensive glow up theory just because I'd watched him play. Like I thought he was an imposing sort of disruptive presence with a big frame who could be a really effective checker. I just didn't really see him as a guy with untapped offensive potential like that. That never registered for me. Um, the bet that they made on that obviously didn't work out. And, and ends up costing them a pick. But uh, again, I think you have to divorce a trade that m- might have made sense from a contract that didn't, right? And then mm-hmm. and then there's and then there's compounding costs to that too, right? Like the d- because Dickinson was arbitration eligible and had to get his contract done in mid-August as opposed to the club being able to wait, you know, that's 2.6 million less in cap space that could have gone to signing Elias Pettersson long term, right? I mean, the opportunity cost of the Dickinson year kind of like kind of like Nate Schmidt right and and again this is one of my favorites was like the Canucks acquired Nate Schmidt for a third and it was like what a steal right and then they dumped Nate Schmidt's salary for a third 12 months later and it's like what a steal and it's like (laughs) no you don't get to win a trade that didn't work twice you have to factor in the opportunity cost right the opportunity cost that the Canucks incurred holding Dickinson for a year was cataclysmic, particularly because he didn't help their penalty kill at all uh, and really sunk that season. Um, you know, not not personally, but he was a big part of what didn't work for the Canucks in that first 25 games without question. I think that's how he'll be remembered in this market. And that's too bad. You know, he's a hardworking player who's um, taken the hard path to the NHL. And I still think he's got the defensive utility to help a team. Uh, we'll see if well he's going to get a ton of opportunity in Chicago. Oh, yeah. We'll see if he bounces back uh, to the point where he's you know an asset uh, with fifty percent retained for the Blackhawks in the next year or two. Um, you know, in, in talks with another playoff team. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all, right? If he ends up going to uh, being a deadline deal, not not a high profile one, like not somebody that you're coming in and saying, okay, this guy's our our first choice third line center, but somebody if down the road they acquire him to be kind of in that middle six. Uh, or sorry, bottom six mix for a team would not surprise me uh, at all whatsoever if that is the case for Jason Dickinson. So this uh, this one comes in from Kevin from Calgary. Is a second-round pick worth potentially being able to sign Andre Kuzmenko next summer? And beyond that specific question, I mean, just what – so we talked a little bit about how you don't get the maximum benefit of clearing up that cap space when you do it now versus doing it at the beginning of the summer. But on the flip side, I mean, what are the potential ways they can kind of benefit from – opening up what little cap space they did in this deal. Obviously, we talked about the opening night Wait, roster. Is it 1.3 million? 1.3 million, yeah. So, the, I mean, it helps. Like, every cent helps. I don't want to minimize that, right? Um, they paid significantly to free up an additional 1.3 million, and that's useful, and that will be useful next summer. But, you know, they also prioritized getting a player back, right? There, there are absolutely variations of this deal where the Canucks could have got nothing back, right? They could have got a 750 K American mm-hmm. league guy. Right. And then, and then you're talking real cap savings. Then you're talking 2.6 million in cap savings. And then we can talk about how it helps them sign Kuzmenko. You know uh, what well, they, they, this was a trade for a defenseman and some additional cap flexibility, but very much you got to put Stillman first. Uh, the Canucks just paid a premium on the acquisition fee effectively, because of uh, the fact that they got some additional cap flexibility in the deal. I don't think it's right to look at this trade as a pure cap dump. 
uh, because of the fact that they took Stillman back. It's not the difference. Like the 1.3 million is not why they pay the second round pick. They pay a premium price on a defenseman who probably could have been acquired for a sixth or a fifth, mm-hmm. right? In order to also shed salary in the deal. Like the the salary shedding aspect isn't the top line item here for me. Ram- it shouldn't be seen that way. Yeah. Uh, Ramsey texts in. Um, what, I know you touched on this uh, just a little bit, Drance, but he says, what do you and Drance know about Stillman? I'm not familiar with him uh, other than from his media availability. And Ramsey, you're not going to believe this, but Riley Stillman was drafted by the Florida Panthers and debuted, broke in to the NHL uh, with the Florida Panthers. So I know you have some firsthand knowledge, and I know you mentioned earlier, uh, extremely, extremely high character guy the Canucks are getting, Drancer. Yeah, I probably have the puck shot from his first NHL game on my phone. To there be you totally go. Honest with you, I haven't I haven't gone through and looked, but uh, that I worked his first game. Uh, worked with him a ton at like development camps. Like he was at a lot of the development camps that I worked, and then uh, made his way up the organization and ended up debuting during my tenure there. Really impressive kid. Like I can't hit that enough. There aren't a lot of young players I've worked with with the, who have impressed me more. Right. Honestly, just from a media maturity um, behind the scenes, great guy meter like he's off the charts, off the charts, oppressive as a human being. And the Canucks have a lot of familiarity with this player. Right. Their their video coach, Dylan Crawford, um, worked with Stillman in the Blackhawks organization. Jeremy Colleton worked with Stillman in the Blackhawks organization, obviously t- Dale Talon, who drafted him, is a is a pro scout mm. for the team. So there's a lot of familiarity with this player. I think he was um, on that list of guys they were eyeing who could hit waivers. Um, you know, in that in that age range that they wanted, and and then uh, the the toughness aspect in particular, I think, really stood out. You know, Stillman is a willing fighter. Uh, he will throw bone rattling hits. And I think the organization just really feels that they need to be harder to play against. Yeah, and I, and think that's, I think that's a bone-deep belief from the very top. And I look at Riley Stillman and just hearing what you've had to say and what others who know him have had to say as well, the style of game he plays. And look, from the, from the price paid and the future implications and all that, maybe I'm not a huge fan of the trade, but I also look at Riley Stillman and, you know, think of how much Luke Shen has endeared himself to Canucks fans, right, and the valuable role he has played. Now, you can't build an entire blue line out of those players, right? There's a limit to how much <laughs> you have. At a certain point, you need, you need guys with upside. You need guys with a higher ceiling. But I do also think, you know, he checks a lot of those same boxes. Obviously not nearly as advanced in his career, different path to getting to that point, but just – Guy who knows what he is, knows how to play his role, is going to be extremely likable, is going to do all of those little things that you love to see. And I do think he has a chance to similarly really endear himself uh, to Canucks fans. We'll, we'll wait to see exactly how it looks on the ice with Riley Stillman. Obviously, just joining the team might take him a little bit to get going. But I do see potential for a player to to play an interesting role for the team and, and specifically to really win some Canucks fans over with his play. Jeff Merrick. Yeah, the Jeff Merrick Show is back across the Sportsnet radio network. He's back at work. We will talk to him next, get his thoughts on the Canucks offseason, how he thinks they stack up uh, in the Western Conference and the Pacific Division as well. That's coming up next. It is Canucks Talk, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk here on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. It's Jamie Dodd. It's my co-host Thomas Drance here with you until 2 o'clock today. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone listening. Thanks for making us a part 
of your long weekend. Canucks Talk is brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Jeff Merrick will join us uh, momentarily here on the line. Quick update just from Canucks practice. If you haven't uh, already seen the news, Quinn Hughes was absent again. He's had a couple maintenance days, days off recently. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux says he is sick with a non-COVID illness hopeful that he will be back on the ice for tomorrow's practice. Brock Besser and Ilya Mikheyev both skating in non-contact jerseys uh, for the Canucks today. We'll play you back everything that uh, Boudreaux had to say to the media a little bit later in the show. Uh, Right now, though, Jeff Merrick, he is the host of the Jeff Merrick Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network, also simulcasting uh, on Sportsnet 360 this season. You also hear him on 32 Thoughts, see him as part of NHL, uh, the NHL on Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, Jeff, did I miss any of your many, many credits there in that intro? Yes, at the end of the night, they hand me a broom and I sweep up (laughs) on my way out. How about that? I was going to say, just just going through all of them, I felt a a little guilty for asking you to do this one. I was like, man, this guy's busy enough as it is, and now Uh, we we dragged him on here. Sportsnet bingo caller. That's all really I need. That's that's fine. <laughs> well, we really appreciate the time, and I know I was uh, I was thrilled to hear you and uh, and Elliot back on the air out here today. It's it's one of the highlights uh, of my morning prep <laughs> process. Um, and I you know I always love Friedman to make sure to get a little tidbit in uh, for the Vancouver audience at the end there. So that, that's much he tries to he always tries to we, we uh, very much respect and value everyone who's listening. Yes, so uh, yes, thank you. Thank Toronto, you. Calgary, Vancouver. Thank you. Uh, so, I mean, just from a kind of a big picture perspective, what did uh, yep. what did you make of, of how the Canucks summer and offseason unfolded and has unfolded to this point, Jeff? You know, with a little bit surprised, I think like a lot of us, um, I was very much uh, of the belief, and I think we all were, that this was going to be um, a team that kind of, I don't want to say totally stripped itself down, but more, you know, added pieces that complemented a Pedersen-Quinn timeline you know, Quinn, Pedersen, Demko, that kind of idea, Horvat uh, as well. And, you know, we got a Brock Besser extension, as you guys know, a JT Miller extension uh, as well, although they still have the ability to move him. Um, I, I think I was kind of surprised. But then, you know, the more that I sort of sat with it and looked at the Pacific, you know, I, I tried to squint really hard and say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to work with this new logic here of, of, of what the Vancouver Canucks are trying to do. And said, you know, the two givens in the Pacific are Edmonton and Calgary. I still don't think that we know what the Vegas Golden Knights are going to be this season. We all know that all the moves are going to, you know, eventually catch up to Vegas. Is this, you know, they bowed out of the playoffs, you know, last season didn't qualify. Does that happen again this year? And the goaltending situation is is very much up in the air. Um, The Los Angeles Kings, you know, is that legit? Is it fool's gold? And if things don't break for the Kings and things don't break for the, the Vegas Golden Knights, do the Vancouver Canucks have a shot here uh, at getting in, given that, you know, we don't expect much from San Jose. We don't expect much uh, from Seattle. And I don't, although I don't think Anaheim's as bad as some people think, mm-hmm. I don't think this is a playoff team. So maybe if I squint really hard at this, I say to myself, okay, I can understand the logic that they might have a shot here at getting in the playoffs. But I was of the mind that just getting in the playoffs wasn't the idea here for the Vancouver Canucks. So I was I was a little bit surprised, Gene. Jeff, what what do you make of Riley Stillman in particular as as an ad for this team? Uh, it seems like the organization really prioritized just getting a heavy body, a guy who can maybe be a little bit of a traditional hard to play against type. 
Uh, is yeah. that something this group needs? I'm, I'm not. See, I'm, I'm of a couple of minds of it. You know, over the past few years, I've, I've said no. Grantor, like I've said, like you, you, you don't really need that in the game anymore. But then, you know, what the interesting thing is now, like if you have a look around the league, and we know this is a, certainly a copycat league, but if you look at if you look at Moritz Sider, for example, I'm not comparing Riley Stillman to Moritz Sider, but you know, Sider's a hard hitting defenseman. You look at what Alexander Romanov has done, you know, you know, did on 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 the weekend to the New York Rangers. And, you know, the shot in the arm that he's given the Islanders. You look at uh, Arbor Jackeye, you know, this kid that's exploded on the scene, played with the Bulldogs last year. He's come in. He's hitting everything that moves. He's on the opening night roster uh, for the Montreal Canadiens. And it almost seems as if now, whereas everything in the past few years has been about skill and foot speed, now it almost seems as if teams want a little bit more bite and want a little bit more of an edge um, to their to, to their players specifically on the blue line, they want some. They want more sharks in the water. So I, I look at it that way and say, you know, the former Oshawa general is you know probably someone you know more in that vein than not. But you're right. Like this seems like you know it almost seems like it, it would have been someone that Jim Benning would have coveted a lot more than maybe Alvin and Rutherford. But then when you look at the trend in the NHL right now, you know people. You know, teams now want some defensemen on the back end that, that leave a bruise, that you know remind you to have the ice ready when the uh, when the when the when the game is over. So from that point of view, it, I, I guess it kind of does make sense to me. With this team positioned where they're at, right? You, you talk about how you see the the Pacific pecking order, and I'm with you. The Anaheim Ducks are going to lose a lot of. Six five games, but they're going to be memorable. Six five games. Uh, when yeah. when you look through this Pacific Division pecking order overall, does it make sense for this team where they're at to be shedding, you know, a, a draft pick like a future to perhaps enhance the chance that your vision, right, uh, of the path for Vancouver, um, to to enhance the chance that that's their reality come April. I wouldn't. And and here's why, like going going into the draft this year, like Drancer, did we not say that whomever the Vancouver Canucks take in the first round automatically becomes their their number one prospect? Oh yeah, yep. Like I I understand the idea of when it's go for it time, you go for it, and there's no better example than the Pittsburgh Penguins who still have you know no draft capital, no prospect capital to to look at or or, or work with. I'm I'm still very sensitive, and I know I keep coming back to it, about the Quinn Hughes-Elias Pedersen timeline. And I still think that if the Vancouver Canucks are not just going to be a playoff team, but a team that does long-term significant damage, like, don't you think it has to be done on that timeline? Like, on the, on the, on the, the Pedersen-Horvat-Hughes uh, timeline and not any other timeline? Like, it's great that – and listen, I understand – I understand what everyone went through during COVID and the, the, the amount of money that's been lost and trying to recoup money and, you know, you know, uh, sell a, a, a playoff spot race and sell playoff games. Like I understand the realities of all that, that, that does make sense to me. But then there's, I always come back to the idea of being penny wise and pound foolish. Like, do you want to be good for a couple of years or do you want like long sustained success? And if I'm the Vancouver Canucks, I see the building blocks. For something long term, I just don't know whether Vancouver's in a position 
right now to start, you know, throwing away more picks because, you know, right now the, the, the prospect pool is, 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 is kind of shallow. You do those things when you're really close. And even then there's no guarantees. Like look at the Florida Panthers last year. Like last year the Florida Panthers were, you know, uh, burn the bridges, right? Burn the boats. You know, we're landing and we're going for it here. And where did that get them? They beat Washington, barely, and then they got stomped by the, the Tampa Bay Lightning. And now they find themselves probably taking a step back. The timing of this is all real tricky. I mean, I'd be curious what you think about this, but I'm of the mind that, no, you don't start trading draft capital now, even though you might think you're close to a playoff spot. Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one, Jeff, because, you know, you're talking about the Pedersen and Hughes timeline. And I also look at another huge part of the timeline is Thatcher Demko, who has arrived as a, a top tier goalie, is under contract very at a very, very team friendly number uh, for yeah. this year and three more after it. So I can kind of understand the impulse to say, OK, well, we want to get a couple of kicks of the can while Thatcher Demko is making only five million dollars. Right. While he's playing like this. Maybe we have to accelerate the process a little bit to do it in that time frame. But if you're doing it by trading those second round picks and, and not re- and just kind of going into the regular season as a bubble team, I think that's pretty tough to swallow as much as you might want to be aggressive while you have Thatcher Demko signed to that deal. Yeah, I, I get that. And, you know, the, the other thing, too, is here, like as much as I keep talking about the, you know, the Hughes and Pedersen and Horvat, there, you know, you do need to have, you know, older players around to, to complement all of it. And listen, uh, Thatcher Demko, like Elliot on the podcast, uh, I think the one that's going to come out tomorrow, maybe it's the one that comes out later on today. I'm not sure. You know, th- that's his pick for the for the um, uh, for the Vesna this year, and I don't think anyone should look sideways at that. Like I think that Thatcher Demko is 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 that good, and there's going to be a lot of games that you know the Vancouver Canucks, you know, probably shouldn't win, but they do because of Thatcher Demko. I think one of the things. And you guys know this. You guys have talked about this. Like one of the things that they're going to have to manage is the workload for Thatcher Demko. So should you make it to the playoffs, this guy's not burned out, and he can still be an asset and not a burned out liability. Um, if you have the goalie, you always have a chance. And the one thing we keep coming back to here is, I mean, how many teams have elite level goaltenders? Not that many. The Vancouver Canucks do, like you know, the Rangers do, mm-hmm. the Calgary Flames do, like there's the uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning certainly do, but there aren't many teams that have that super high end goaltender. The Vancouver Canucks do. I understand the idea that you know the you've only got this guy at five million until until twenty six here, and that's still a sizable amount of time, but still, I I don't know whether this team is that close to the top of their winning cycle that you'd want to start just saying, you know what, we have it right now. Let's start going for it. Uh, In conversation with Jeff Merrick here on Canucks Talk. He's the host of the Jeff Merrick Show, which is back now on 650 and across the Sportsnet radio network. One of the big surprises for me, Jeff, I mean, not just the fact that they ended up signing JT Miller to an extension because I always knew how hard it would be to actually go through and trade a player who just, you know, led your team in scoring 99 points, all of that. But I think the bigger surprise is that we're sitting here two days before the beginning of the season JT Miller is signed to a long-term deal. Bo Horvat still does not have a contract beyond this year, the captain of the team. What do you make of the situation with Bo Horvat and you know, going into the final year of his deal right now? Yeah, I've said it over the last while. I'm still surprised that here we are October 10th, and you know, we're talking about you know, when is this Bo Horvat extension going to come. I guess you know, the, uh, the discussion is you know, what's, what's the number going to be? 
you know, is it going to start with a six? I think it starts with a seven and we'll, we'll see where it goes from there. Um, like I look at Bo Horvat and I say, no brainer that he maybe should have been the easy one to, 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 to get done here. Um, he's your captain. He's your leader. Uh, he's someone that was, I believe going to be on team Canada at the Olympics last season. Um, to me, I, I think he's one of these, these players that you, you know, as I, I mentioned timelines that you help build everything around. I'm, I'm still stunned. Uh, I know it's going to be a big contract. I know that, you know, if I'm Horvat's camp, I look at what Matthew Barzell just signed for. And I say, thank you. I think Dylan Larkin's probably saying the same thing. Uh, I know this is going to be an expensive deal for the Vancouver Canucks, but to be honest with you, I thought this was going to be the easy one, Jamie. I didn't think this was no going doubt. to end up being the, being being the hard one out of all of it. I think the club might have thought it was going to be the easy one. Um, <laughs> if you asked them five months ago yeah. versus what sort of transpired here, what risks does a team that does drama better than anyone else in this league, uh, what what risks do they take? Of and we know Horvat's not going to rock the boat, but we've all been there. We've all been in that work situation where someone gets promoted in front of you, where someone else gets picked, and you you always feel, no matter what, even if you yeah. continue to be professional, you always feel like they picked the other guy. Uh, what risks does this team run, considering their short term ambitions? going into yeah. the season with the posture the way the posture set up the way it is. Yeah. You talking about Bo Horvat specifically here? Yeah. So I think it depends on the person. Yeah. And you know, I, I know Horvat's family a little bit and you know, I I know the way that Horvat was was brought up. Uh I know his dad relative like I know his dad okay and I, I know the upbringing and I know I know the person, and I know this isn't someone that gets offended easy. I know this isn't a family that has nerves that are really close to the skin. You know, like there, mm. there are plenty of like we, we've always we used to joke about this in Toronto. Like you know, the one thing that's going to screw up the Maple Leafs, you know, when they had all you know the the, the Nylander deals and Marner and all that, you know, it's going to be the hockey dads that ruin this. You know, and there are some teams that you look at <laughs> the negotiations and you say. Oh man, it's going to be the hockey dads that kill this NHL team, and right. I, I I I don't get that sense, nor have I ever had that sense from the Horvat family. Like it's a really grounded family. He's a really grounded guy. He's a he's a thorough professional. I understand what you're saying. Like, and and I think with some players, it like some players whose nose gets whose noses get put out of joint really quickly. Because, you know, like unleavened bread, they got passed over. And how come this guy before me? And I just don't get the sense that Bo Horvat is that guy. I, I really don't. Like, that's one of the things that, you know, I've always appreciated about Bo, Hor- Bo Horvat. Like, he's not a guy that lets, the high, that lets the highs get too high and the lows too low. And I don't think that he gets offended easily at all. So a long-winded way of saying, I don't think that that's an issue. I think this guy's a thorough pro and he'll play through it and the deal will happen if slash when the deal happens would he rather that the deal happens sooner than later and he doesn't have to worry about it yeah but i don't think that bo horvat has gotten to the place that he's at now in his career without feeling that way because 
all along the way. Hockey will always give you a, I mean, it'll always give you a reason to be slighted and hockey will always give you a reason to be pissed off about your situation. All team sports are like that. I just don't think that that's in that. That's how Bo Horvat is wired. Jeff with where this team's positioned, right? Uh, we were saying earlier on the program, if this had been a trade that the Canucks made and we're talking, I'm talking about Stillman Dickinson. If that was a yeah. trade that they'd made in June, I would have said, Oh, that's the price of inheriting a really tough cap situation, right? Like that's the price of inheriting it. When they go through the summer they way the way they did and sort of doubled down on this lineup. In your view, at this point, you know, having done the Miller deal, having signed Mikhaev, right? Um, mm-hmm. In some ways, do you think this new management group owns or has ownership of or should have ownership of Vancouver's overall, you know, unbalanced books, as it were? Ooh. Let me <laughs> let me see what I, I answer. It, it's a it's a it's a great question. Um, yeah, I don't know that I have the answer to it either. To be clear, boy, that is a hell of a question, and I I don't want like, I respect you too much to to just give you a glib answer to to go hot takey <laughs> on, on on talk radio. Um, I still want to see how Miller plays out this year. Like I, I, I hate to be wishy-washy. I, I just don't want to give you a, a, a quick knee-jerk answer. I want to see how the JT Miller situation plays itself out this year because they still do have the option to do something there. Well, let, let, let me see. Let, let, let me see what happens there first. Uh, Jeff, just before we let you go, you know, another... Bad answer by Jamie. You can say, Jeff, that's a really bad answer. Oh, no. Uh, I thought that was a great answer. It's not why we brought you on. No, no. We appreciate (laughs) appreciate the vote of respect. Uh, We need it. We need it from everywhere we can get it, Jeff. Let me tell you that much. Um, But just just before we let you go, you know, another kind of interesting subplot, and it's easy to forget about, you know, the fact that Bruce Boudreaux doesn't have a contract either beyond this year because, you know, he comes in and it's Bruce, there it is, and the the fan base loves him. He couldn't be more endearing. He's Bruce Boudreaux, so they win a ton of games, even if they fall short of the of the playoffs. But then you hear the commentary, you know, after the season, he doesn't have the he doesn't get an extension, doesn't have a, a deal beyond this year. Does this, is there any chance that you know we're talking about a, another Canucks coaching search at some point this year in your eyes? Uh, I, I think you have to at least talk about it. I think it's a legitimate discussion point. Um, you know. It, in, in the industry, there are certain people you cheer for, and sometimes it's because you like the person, and sometimes it's because of the situation that they find themselves in that you can't help but cheering for them. And that's why I think a lot of people around the NHL are cheering for Bruce Boudreau. Uh, one, because of who he is, but two, because of what we saw him go through in, in, the, in the summer. And you're right. like As far as regular season success goes, not that Boudreaux is that, you know, that X's and O guy. He, he's not. He, he's, he's not that guy. He's not the, you know, the, the hard matchup guy. He's, he's not. But mm-hmm. he's a guy that can, you know, inspire a team and, and help will a team into the postseason. After that, all, all bets are off. But I think considering he is on the expiring contract, like, and how many coaches are available, like, more so than ever, there are high-level coaches that are available uh, and and looking for work, and you know, I'm sure the conversation at some point, like the first like losing streak Vancouver goes through, or if they get off to a horrible start, you know, we'll we start to have the conversation, start to hear the conversation of well, 
what's it going to take to get Barry Trotz interested uh, once, once again in coaching? And uh, how is Claude Julian feeling uh, about you know, coming into a, to an organization? And does the Vancouver Canucks, the Vancouver Canucks need what structure? And they, they need someone like Claude Julian. Like, of, of course that's all going to start. And I think that's to be expected. And, and Bruce Boudreaux has been around the NHL for decades. And I, I think that Boudreaux would look at that and say, that's just part of the business. And, that's to to be expected. I don't think that'll come as any shock to anybody. Jeff, really appreciate it. Uh, as I said off the top, uh, really excited that uh, your show is back, that you and Elliot Friedman and all your other guests are back on the air uh, every day of the week now here on 650. Thanks for doing this. Hopefully we can chat again soon. Of course, Jamie, uh, Drancer, thanks so much. And that Drancer, that's a, I'm going to, now you give me something to think about while I go walk the dog. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. That's, uh, I have a bad <laughs> habit of that one. <laughs> hey, happy Thanksgiving thanks. to you and yours, Jeff. Thank you. Ha- happy Thanksgiving, boys. Have a good one. That is Jeff Merrick, of course, the host of the Jeff Merrick Show across the Sportsnet Radio Network, also simulcasting on Sportsnet 360 now. You also hear him on 32 Thoughts, and as I said, part of the NHL and Sportsnet and Hockey Night in Canada as well, one of the busiest guys in hockey media, and uh, yeah, always, always a pleasure to get a chance to chat with Merrick Trancer. Very kind of him to to come on and indulge our difficult ones, our difficult questions. Yes, yes. you know, it's an interesting situation that this team, this team is always interesting, right? Like, no matter what, it's been seven years with one playoff berth, and they're mm-hmm. still fascinating going into this season. And you think about the Bo Horvat, the Bruce Boudreaux storylines, right? The referendum on this summer, on, on the fact that this roster has been, in some respects, doubled down on after the, the run uh, under Boudreaux to close the season, even though Boudreaux wasn't extended. I mean, it is a fascinating mix of factors that are going to shape what we discuss uh, and how we discuss this team this season. And then, you know, lurking in that background is the thing that Merrick started with, which was the Pacific Division pecking order. And I think he's got it right, right? I think we look at the Alberta teams as safer bets mm-hmm. than the California teams or than the California-Nevada team. And, you know, I think we look at the Kings as a team that, you know, they could take a big step forward. They could struggle to build off of their success last season. And Vegas is the ultimate wild card, right? I mean, they could be anywhere within a 30-point range and everyone will just shrug and be like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I can see it. (laughs) No surprise there. Um, (laughs) You know, and the 85-point Vegas Golden Knights makes sense to me. The 115-point Vegas Golden Knights with you know, Jack Eichel warranting heart consideration, that also makes sense to me. So, you know, it's going to be a fascinating mix and their performance relative to those teams in the Pacific are ultimately going to shape how much drama we perceive around all these various pressure points. And and that's not to say that's always how it is, right? The Caps won the Stanley Cup and Barry Trotz departed the next day, uh-huh. right? Like success doesn't necessarily neuter drama by any means, but it does feel like the intensity of the conversation and the direction that these conversations take ultimately will be dictated by the results on the ice, by whether or not this team wins. And that sort of adds a fair bit of pressure, I think, to what we're about to see unfold. 
beginning on Wednesday night in Edmonton. It, it does feel kind of wild considering how immediately drama-filled and kind of pressure-packed and intense the beginning of the season was last year. And again, winning smooths a lot of it over. Not all of it, as you said, but at least in the short term, it smooths a lot of it over. But it's going to be fascinating to see how the first couple of months here play out. The one thing I did notice, you know, you said uh, nobody does drama in the NHL better than the Canucks. I do think the Flyers might give them a run for their money this year. I do think the Flyers might give them a run for their, well, for their sorry. money. You're right. And I should have captioned it with no one does drama in the NHL better than John Tortorella. Yeah. Right. Yes. Exactly. I mean, but but, you know, there's a Canucks angle there, too. I did have to uh, I did have to laugh. I was listening to uh, to Merrick and Friedman this morning and the, the Flyers came up and I think it was Friedman said, you know, there's some internal debate in Philly. Uh, some people want to play the kids and some others don't think they're ready. And I was like, oh, I wonder who's in that ladder camp. <laughs> I wonder who, <laughs> I wonder who doesn't want to play the kids in Philadelphia. What a mystery. Very, very interesting. Uh, Seriously. <laughs> shocked. I am shocked to hear that they're having that debate after hiring John Tortorella. More Canucks talk coming up on the other side. We'll really get into the roster deadline, what to watch for between now, 2 p.m. when the deadline hits, and also between now and Wednesday's opener in Edmonton. Plus, hear from Bruce Boudreau, who spoke after the the, uh, the Canucks practice today at UBC. Plus, keep texting in your thoughts and questions, 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. More Canucks talk on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canucks Talk on Sportsnet 650. I'm Jamie Dodd. Thomas Trance, Canucks Insider, is my co-host who also covers the team at The Athletic. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment. Your Kubota All-Star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. Thanks to Jeff Merrick for joining us in the previous segment. Great to get his thoughts on everything going on with the Canucks. And, uh, Drancer, I know you are fired up because we are now officially Less than an hour away from roster deadline date time uh, of 2 p.m. Pacific uh, when all NHL teams have to submit their beginning of the season rosters and be cap compliant and all that fun stuff. And, you know, I think for a team that's spending to the upper limit of the salary cap and also has a, a, a salary that needs to go on LTIR and Michael Furland, it's always kind of complicated and there's a certain number of gymnastics you have to go through to to really maximize what you can do. The Canucks also have a, a host of various injury situations that we're monitoring, right, and that are kind of uncertain. Some of them we got a little clarity on today, right? Quinn Hughes, after a few absences, it turns out it's just a non-COVID illness. Seems very, very likely he'll be good to go on Wednesday. That's obviously a huge relief uh, for the Canucks coaching staff, management fans, etc. Uh, but some other ones we're still curious about, right? Ilya Mikheyev status, Brock Besser, Tyler Myers, Travis Dermott. So you add that complicating factor in, and it becomes even more complex uh, to kind of predict how this is all going to shake out than it would in a normal year. Yeah, usually by this point, I have a very good idea, uh, a savant's idea of exactly how the Canucks plan to set their opening night 23-man roster. Uh, currently, I'm flying a little bit blind, but I, I can sort of flesh out a few things. One thing I, I believe is that the organization's going to go down to the wire a little bit um, checking to see how various guys responded after practice today, uh, figuring out exactly and being very careful about what injury designations they give to players. A reminder, if you go on injured reserve, right, you have mm -hmm. to miss a week of action. That's seven days. So you're not eligible to play in the first four games of Vancouver's season from from um, 
oh, I guess in t- first three games. From today until the 18th, you could return, right? After the seventh day. So uh, they'll be very careful about using that designation, which frees up a roster spot but not cap space on players that they think may have a chance of playing, whether it's in Edmonton, Philadelphia, or Washington, one of those first three games. As such, I'd expect Besser and Mikhaev to be just on the roster, mm-hmm. right? Whether whether they're able to play in the first game or not, and as I reported last week, they're both pushing to get there. I think we've seen that play out as they've rejoined the team for practices this week. Um, you know, that there, I, I would expect that the Canucks will go with 14 forwards and have zero injury designation on either of those players. Uh, Furland will go on LTI, and the Canucks, it seems, while they're still uh, grinding down to the wire and figuring out exactly what they're going to do, uh, my my expectation is the Canucks, you know, are going to get a good amount of that captured. Uh, certainly within a hundred grand of the full capture. Uh, maybe not quite at the Toronto level of all but four dollars captured, but uh, <laughs> they'll do uh, they'll do pretty well here. They'll capture most of that three point five million. Um, I would expect a handful of paper transactions uh, as the Canucks sort of set their roster. In particular, I would guess that Linus Carlson, Niels Hoaglander, Niels Amon, and Jack Rathbone. Um, you know, are, are the guys who could be paper transactions who would go down but be recalled prior to uh, Wednesday. So uh, when the NHL actually releases those opening night rosters, if any of those four guys aren't on it, uh, don't worry, that doesn't tell you anything. That doesn't mean they haven't made the team. That yeah. doesn't mean they've been cut. It's just a paper transaction to facilitate uh, the capture as best the Canucks can. And a reminder that in Carlson and Amon's case, if they're not on the um, opening day roster, when they come back up, their cap hit will be 925K, not the 883 or whatever you see on capfriendly.com at the moment. And in Niels Hoaglander's case, his cap hit on recall would be 1.125, factoring in his performance bonuses. Um, I, I would imagine that the Canucks will have an additional player on LTI. Right. Mm -hmm. One of Myers, Phil DiGiuseppe or Travis Dermott. Now, Phil DiGiuseppe, they said two to four weeks uh, last on Friday. Um, I would guess because his salary is prorated. It's a two way deal. Right. So it's a prorated cap hit for for the purposes of this calculation. I would guess he stays on IR. Uh, Myers, my guess would be he also stays on IR because the team won't be chomping at the bit to get him back as quickly as possible, right? His two to four week timeline gives a lot of wiggle room, right? Missing two weeks from last Friday could mean missing five games, Mm -hmm. right? But missing four, four weeks could mean missing, you know, 11 or 12. If you you think it's going to be 11 or 12, you can go on LTI because that requires you to miss 10 games the entire month of October, um, you know, for, for the Canucks. My guess is they'll be very reluctant to use that device for Myers simply because if he can return in game eight, you know, you don't want to miss two extra games when you don't have to from a defender who plays that type of role on this team. Dermot, we have way less detail about his injury, right? Alvin suspects he may have a concussion is what he told the media on Friday. No timeline has been given. We haven't seen him practice. We don't even know if he's skated yet. Um, you know, the the for me, the big question now remains, will Dermot start the year on LTI? In which case, they'll be able to travel east with 23 bodies on the roster. Uh, if Dermot stays on IR and does not go on LTI, I, I can't do the math to get them to a full 23-man yeah. roster. I, I think in that case, they're going to have to travel with 22, uh, 14 forwards, um, or sorry, 
seven defensemen and two goalies yeah the the tricky thing is the Dermot LTI because my just kind of back of the envelope calculations you know you can paper down so, quote unquote Hoaglander Amon Carlson and Rathbone but it's tricky to bring them all back up especially with you know in in Hoaglander's case a, a fairly significantly increased cap hit as a result of his performance bonuses with just Michael Furlan's LTI space right you need a little you, you, if you had Dermot on LTI as well then it's no problem you can bring those guys back up and you have that full 23 man roster without that you might be a little bit short and you know that's that's less than ideal as you go on a, a five game opening road trip that takes you out to the East Coast. If you're starting at home, maybe that's something you can manage, but it, it wouldn't surprise me at all at this point to see Travis Dermott go on LTI, and yeah, that that can create a situation that you have to deal with down the road, but you cross that bridge when you come to it, because you have no idea what your health situation, what your injury situation is going to be at that time. That feels like the most obvious, logical route to being cap compliant and having as healthy and, and as many as avail- available bodies as you can to start the season, right? Yep. Yeah, and it's uh, it's definitely complicated. It's not oh, yeah. where you'd want to be, right? And and little things like Di Giuseppe getting hurt sort of suddenly, and all of a sudden he's not playing in a preseason game, and now that changes a, a fair bit of, about what you're able to do, even in the wake of a deal in which you shed, you know, one point three million in in you know swapping out Dickinson for for Stillman. So. A lot of work to be done by the Canucks in the last hour as they as they go about setting their roster. If I had to guess, like, you know, gun to my head, make a guess, I would guess they'd roll with 23 men on the roster, 14 forwards, and, and both Dermott and Furland on LTI. But that is just my best guess, my mm-hmm. best feel for it. Uh, I'm obviously doing my best to report it in real time, but the complexity of the situation has ballooned because of how much money – uh, the Canucks have invested in players whose health status is yeah. uncertain going into the season. Now, the other thing to note, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but they will not be putting anyone on waivers in order to be salary cap compliant, right? Because that well, they would have, can't. That would have had to already missed. happen. Yeah, exactly. Correct. So yeah. guys like Joshua and Kyle yeah. Burroughs, you know, have made the team. They're, they, they managed to avoid waiving either by making an additional trade. Um, you know, I think if they hadn't, they probably would have been in a spot, which I was talking about prior to training camp, where one of those had to be a pretty tough decision. Yeah, and the other, you know, obviously, I think because of the injuries on defense, it changes the consideration anyways, but we had people text in, you know, would they ever consider waving Poolman as a, as a device to get below the salary cap? That obviously hasn't happened. So the only guys you can see moves uh, between now and when they have to set their roster at the deadline are the guys who are, uh, you know, waiver exempt, and that's Carlson, Amon, uh, Hoaglander, Rathbone, etc. Uh, well, so, and then and then Kuzmenko and Pod Colson too, but their performance yes. bonuses are too big. It's just too, um, it's just too hard to get them, you know, back on the roster if you take them off. Both of their effective cap hits would would double basically. So uh, those guys, I would think are not even going to be subject to paper transactions. Yeah, you just don't really accrue any benefit, even if you do the paper uh, the paper transaction with those guys. So it's the other four uh, that we'll be paying close attention to, and we will see what it ultimately looks like and how effectively they are able to uh, maximize the Furland LTI contract. Again, roster deadline is at two, uh, and we'll see when information about exactly how the Canucks have set things up comes up. All right, the Canucks were on the ice uh, at practice at UBC today. I'll just run through how they lined up. Obviously, missing some bodies, some guys practicing in non-contact jerseys. Uh, at forward, it was Miller between Pearson and Hoaglander, Horvat between Pod Colson and Garland, Patterson with Kuzmenko and Carlson, and Niels Amon with Joshua 
and Lazar. And again, I think we talked about this on Friday, right? Hoaglander and Carlson on their respective lines look like very, very easy placeholders uh, for Brock Besser and Ilya Mikheyev, respectively. Beyond that, you know, maybe you sub one of one or both of those guys in for Wednesday. It feels very, very much like these are familiar pairings that we've seen, uh, familiar trios that we've seen in some case. This is what we're looking for. And obviously, as a result of the uh, Jason Dickinson deal, Niels Amon has really solidified his claim uh, to that fourth-line center spot, Drancer, and that seems like where he, he's going to start the season for the club. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think he will. And, you know, sort of speaks to a variety of, of things about this club's roster construction all around, right? I think we lost Drancer again, but we will get him back momentarily here on Canucks Talk. Sportsnet 650-650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. So that was the forward group. Now, Brock Besser and Ilya Mikheyev were skating in a non, in non-contact jersey, so not full participants, but they were rotating in as extras in those lines, as you'd expect. So Besser with Miller and Pearson, Mikheyev with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. No surprise to see any of those trios together. On the blue line, and remember, this was without Quinn Hughes, in addition to no Myers uh, and no uh, and no Travis Dermott, as we've gotten used to. It was OEL Woolman, Jack Rathbone and Luke Shen, and Riley Stillman and Kyle Burrows. Before we tackle the blue line there, uh, Drancer, you were just talking about Niels Amon and what it says about the team's roster construction. You got me? I got you. (laughs) Yeah, no, Niels Amon making the team, I mean, I do think it speaks to, you know, the opportunities that are still available here, right? We talk a lot about forward depth being a strength of this team, and yet... You know, Neil Zaman and, and Linus Carlson have come in and they've played well, but like neither have blown the doors off, right? You wouldn't say that either has has come in and sort of shocked the world with their NHL readiness. They've mm-hmm. been they've been good. They've impressed the organization with their maturity, with their character. You love to hear that, but you know, I don't know that either's come in and state state uh, like staked the sort of claim where I, where we're talking about them as as potential stars for this team this season, right? So. Neil Zaman is a nice piece. I like the size. I like the speed. I like the intelligence. I think he's a very safe bet to play 100 NHL games. I think that's a major win for this organization, considering the circumstances uh, under which he was signed. And yet, you know, I, I do think for all that we've talked about this club's forward depth, and this brings us back to a debate we had last yeah. week, right? Like, you know, these guys have made a strong case without necessarily having to, you know, really... Uh, knock the door down necessarily this still isn't a team that's as difficult to make as I'm sure Alvin and Rutherford would like it to be in the years to come well and I mean we talk so much we talk a lot about the prospect pipeline right and how it needs more in it specifically a lot of those conversations revolve around the blue line and the right side of defense but I think an under discussed part of it is the the pipeline at center as well you look down the down there and there's not a whole lot coming and that's been the case for a few years now right where you haven't really had that push at center a young guy who can plausibly step up at training camp and claim a spot on the opening night roster and we've seen repeatedly veterans come in and be asked to play down in the bottom six because they haven't had that natural push of young players at that position and it's such a key position so yeah I, I think you're right it's important and it's good that he's been able to do it but it also really highlights what has been, and I think even with Niels Oman's uh, addition to the franchise, it still is really a major weak spot in that prospects pool, Drancer. Yeah, and well, and and 
hopefully not one on the NHL roster, right? I mean, you have yes. Lazar and Dakota Joshua who you can slide in. You have Bo Horvat, JT Miller, and Elias Pettersson down the middle, and that's seen as a strength of the team. And yet, you know, what happens if this club decides, which feels possible to me, right? Like, I look up and down this lineup, and I think, okay, you know, Tanner Pearson on the top line is probably not ideal, right? Uh Andre Kuzmenko in the middle six, I think, is going to work. But will it work on the second line? Will it work if he's top, you know, six forwards in ice time, mm-hmm. right? Um, or are you going to need to consider loading up your top six a little bit more, right? Over the course of the year, as this team inevitably hits the sort of ruts that everyone does over 82 games, um, is there a temptation to move one of those star centermen back to wing for the purpose of, you know, um, bolstering the the yep. overall offensive attack that this team has and and when you do that your depth really is going to be tested right it's not it's not overwhelming put it that way right it, it can be hollowed out quickly uh, in the event that a couple guys struggle out the gate or a couple guys don't develop the way that this club is hoping um and that's you know worth noting right that's very much worth noting because this forward group is everything for this team. Yeah, well, and especially the center depth. The forward group, but it's the center depth that you think can really give them an edge against other teams. And to, to, to echo your point, you know, okay, the fourth line really has three natural centers on it. They're all guys that you probably really like on your fourth line, do not love at all on your third line, right? And obviously in the situation you're talking about, okay, you're going to increase the ice time of your top two lines because you're not going to have as much talent in the third line, but still you want to have a, at least three centers out there that you feel comfortable with. The Canucks are lucky enough to have that, but as soon as you move one of those guys to the wing, you know, all of a sudden it's third line center Curtis Lazar, third line center Dakota Joshua, and you're probably asking them to play a role that you don't feel great about having them in, right? Well, yeah, 100%. And so there's some limited malleability in this forward ranks, it feels like to me, right? It feels like we've got a couple established pairs now. Pearson Miller, mm-hmm. um, you know, it feels like Horvat Pod Colson, it, it, you know, is clearly a preference, like something they really like. And then Pedersen Kuzmenko. Kuzmenko, yeah. And, and where everyone else sort of filters in around that, you know, we'll see. But the options are, you know... Uh, I mean, Besser obviously is is a great one when he's healthy. That that's a hugely helpful one. But then you get to sort of Pearson, um, you know, Mikhaev, Mikhaev, yeah, right, Garland. and then Hoag- and then Hoaglander and Garland, right. And so you you know, two of those guys are for sure top six caliber forwards. Uh, two of those guys, I think you'd probably see as middle six guys ideally. Uh, certainly not top line offensive players in Mikhaev and Pearson, right. And I I like both guys a lot. But I, I don't think you want them on a first line if your goal is to win a division, right? Like, by no means. So, you know, I, I, it just sort of speaks to, again, my, my concern with this forward rank, which is that there's a lot of talent. It's really good, or it could be really good if some things fall their way. But I, I, you know, looking at it and saying that's the strength of this team, like, man, I have way more questions about that than I do about Thatcher Demko. <laughs> Yes, indeed. You know? Indeed. Yeah. I mean, well, if Thatcher Demko, it just comes down to he's a goalie, right? So there's there's just an inherent amount of, uh, of totally. volatility built in. But it's not and a he question. he can't play 82. It, it's not a question about Thatcher Demko himself. It's just, yeah, he's a goalie. So you, you never quite know. You can never write it in stone quite like the way you can, you know, a stud defenseman or a stud center or anything like that. Um, 
not a ton to say about the defensive pairings for me, just because, again, Quinn Hughes is out, and I know there was kind of a, a I don't want to say a panic, but almost a, a prelude to a panic when Canucks fans saw that Quinn Hughes, Quinn Hughes was not on the ice for yet another day. Don't worry. Yep. It's just he's sick, non-COVID. I mean, obviously, it does not look good, especially going in to face uh, Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl on Wednesday with the group that was out there today. But, yeah, it, it does seem like Quinn Hughes uh, will be good to go for that one. I do find it interesting, you know. It's, it's I, I wouldn't go that. I wouldn't go that far. I would say. I would say there's no concern, but until we see him back, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be a little bit nervous, and I would caution Canucks fans not to be completely unnervous. Don't, I just think he'll. I just think he'll play. But when whenever you don't want your star defender to be absent for this length of time, this close to the start of the season, um, even if there's no concern internally, don't um, don't pop the champagne. The the Quinn Hughes. Don't unfurl no. the Quinn Hughes healthy banner just yet. No, not quite yet. <laughs> is let's let's saying. let's see him get back on the ice. They they need him. They need everyone. Truth be told, if they're going to do what they want to do this season. Well, I mean Quinn Hughes. As we talk about, you know, is Thatcher Demko or the forward group the strength of the team? Obviously, nobody is going to call the defense the strength of the team but Quinn Hughes specifically just in terms of you know most indispensable players you, you just see what the blue line looks like without him and how completely it changes the dynamic and all of a sudden you're asking you know OEL to be your number one guy and he's playing with Tucker Poolman and then Rathbone and Shen is your second pairing and I know there's some other absences mixed in here as well but without that rock that foundation of Quinn Hughes uh, it can get pretty scary in a hurry no doubt about it uh, we're going to take a quick break here on Canucks talk we will talk a little bit more about how they lined up in practice plus we will hear from Bruce Boudreaux on the other side what he had to say and some key injury updates as well that's coming up next keep your questions coming in 650 650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line it is Canucks Talk Sportsnet 650 Welcome back to Canucks Talk Sportsnet, Sportsnet 650, the home of the Canucks. Final segment of the show today. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. Thank you for making us a part of your long weekend. I hope you're having a fantastic one. Canucks Talk brought to you by Avenue Machinery and Douglas Lake Equipment, your Kubota all-star team, avenuemachinery.ca, douglaslakeequipment.com. 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Keep your questions coming in about the roster deadline, about how the Canucks are going to line up in Edmonton. Whatever's on your mind, hit us up. We'll try to get to it before the show is over. But first, let's hear from Canucks head coach Bruce Boudreau, who spoke to the media after the team practice today at UBC. Well, it's uh, he, he's feel, this is true. He's feeling under the weather today. And we said, just stay home. It's non-COVID related. It's just like a fluish type thing. So I said... Stay home today and hopefully tomorrow that you can skate and, you know, and, and feel a lot better. So put him on medicine and let's go. Has he gotten worse through since you saw him on Friday? No, no, not this portion. No. We know injuries are part of the game, but this preseason, you guys seem to be knocked hard by injuries. How strange is it going to call you And is it complicated what you want to do with your lines? Well, it has played a little bit of havoc of what you what you dreamed of as your lineup in the in the summer, but I mean, I, I'm sure every team goes through this at some point. Let's hopefully uh, we can get through it, and, uh, and it's at the beginning. And once we get healthy, we stay healthy. So I mean, it's it's uh, hey, it comes with the territory. If you if you're not ready to play when guys are injured, 
I mean, I, I don't think we had a full lineup at all one time last year since I was here. And, and uh, so it's just move on and next guy up, and they got to show that they can play in the league. I think you'll find Brock tomorrow in a, a regular jersey. Um, Mikheyev, uh, we're hoping very close. We're hoping by the practice in Philly that uh, that he'll have a regular jersey. Take into account that you have three games and four nights kind of after Saturday for these players that are coming back, or is that something that if they're ready, they're going to be good for that? Yeah, well, you know, they got to be ready. They have no choice. I mean, we've got three games in four nights, and and uh, it's not a lot of travel once you get to Philadelphia. But, I mean, it's uh, 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 they're, they're in great shape, so, I mean, they'll be ready. If, you, if Brock plays Wednesday, Bruce, I mean, a guy who hasn't played a game, is it just, I mean, is it all hands on deck? You just turn him loose? Do they have to measure his minutes at all? Or just... I guess we have to see how he, if he's ready to play on Wednesday, we're just to see how he plays. You know, I mean, we can always shorten the bench, you know, and he can uh, always take shorter shifts. And, and be just as effective. So, I mean, we'll see how it goes. In the most positive way there is, there is that added dimension of a guy who can, who can wire it, right? He can, he can score a goal at any point in the game. So, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, I, I liken it to all the time to the Colorado game that we played last year, and we're playing solid D, and then Brock scores in the third period, gets the puck on his stick, and, and then that's it. So, I mean, uh, uh, He's a solid NHL player, so I mean, anytime you can get them back in your lineup, you want to get them back in. The trickle down effect of that is that your fourth line could take on a lot of different looks from stay. Some coaches like to have maybe a speed skill element in that. Would that be just one of the things you're going to have to wrestle with in terms of how that line yeah. blocks back? Yeah, we'll see who we have there, and that's that'll be depending on how we're going to that line's going to play. Well, I mean, I hope he's valuable. Like, I, I'm pretty sure he's, you know, right now, I mean, with 6D, I mean, he's very valuable. Like, I mean, I don't know where we'd be right now if we had, uh, didn't, you know, had to practice with five guys. But he's learning the, the system pretty quickly, and uh, he's, he looks like a quick learner, so I think everything will work out. You're giving Carlson a long look here in the preseason, Bruce, in the sense of trying to figure out where his game at is that in North American style game. Without McKayev, you could, you could play Wednesday night. What can you hope from a guy who's new to the league is going to be, could be thrown to the world? Well, you, you certainly hope he's not overwhelmed. Okay. And then uh, you certainly uh, got to believe that if he could hold his own defensively, and that's one of the, the big things about him is he's a smart player, that if he can hold his own defensively, then we're in good shape. If he can't, then we're, you know, he'll probably uh, be a nervous wreck, but hopefully he won't be. To me, this year looks like he's hungrier. He looks like he's stronger. He looks like he's more determined. Does he look like he's poised to take over this VT? The way that he's well, I don't know. I don't know if to take over, but he sure po- he sure looks poised to. Uh, he's ready at the start of the year, and uh, he wants to be a great player. I already think he is, but he he wants to be greater. So I mean, he's pushing himself, which is great for the. Vancouver Canucks. Okay, so are you a big Thanksgiving guy? Is it a big, uh, big I haven't been uh, uh, in Canada in Thanksgiving since I lived with my parents. So it's it's sort of new. The Cowboys aren't on TV, so I don't know what to what to do. But uh, um, it's a it, Thanksgiving's always a great day. You wish you were with your family, but uh, uh, we seem to be a long ways away. But that's okay.
When you were a player, Bruce, uh, did you play through the flu? And sometimes players play better. They just come back and they, I don't know, be energized. Well, Michael Jordan did an okay one game when he had the flu. But, I mean, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's who knows how, how bad anything is all the time and how weak you feel. I mean, it's, that's, that's the thing right now. So we'll see. Oh, I love Bruce Boudreaux pressers. Michael Jordan did okay when he had the flu. There you go, Quinn Hughes. No pressure. No pressure. Come out and play like Mike. Be like Mike uh, if you come back into the lineup on uh, on Wednesday. But that's uh, also, of course, that Bruce Boudreaux saying towards the end that he's a big fan of, of Thanksgiving generally, but has not experienced a Canadian Thanksgiving in Canada for quite some time. So I hope he has a good one. Uh, today, lots to get into there, Drancer. From what uh, from what Boudreau had to say, obviously, probably the most relevant uh, all the various uh, health updates we got. So you heard him talk about Quinn Hughes, non COVID illness, flu kind of thing. Take today off. Hopefully, you're better tomorrow. We'll see how that goes in preparation for Game One on Wednesday. He expects Brock Besser, or at least he hopes Brock Besser will be in a regular jersey at practice tomorrow, which would potentially put him in line to play on Wednesday. And then Ilya Mikheyev, who was also in that non-contact jersey today, uh, he said he hoped by the practice in Philly he'll have a regular jersey. So that would put him, uh, pat his timeline, past game one of the season and seems to rule Ilya Mikheyev out from suiting up against the Oilers. Yep. And consistent with what we reported last week, right? That really that first weekend of the season was going to be uh, sort of the key one to watch for with Mikhaev. In any event, Mikhaev's so good and so important to this team, one would expect that uh, the club won't put him on a IR, although you know, you'd only be risking losing two additional games that right route. So maybe, again, my guess is that Besser and Mikhaev are full roster players mm-hmm. when the Canucks submit their final uh, you know, their opening day roster to the league for, you know, consideration and approval by CR in the next 25 minutes. Um, the flu thing's interesting too, right? Because of how much we've changed in regards to that, right? Like the idea yes. of the idea of working sick uh, has sort of, you know, become a very antisocial concept now. And, uh, and I think that's sort of applied to athletes too, right? The, you know, you used to have guys come in and skate with the flu, right? And one thing people don't know about NHL teams necessarily, but, you know, I was always a big flu shot guy because when I worked for the team, like you had to have it if you were going to be traveling around because uh, the flu just decimates an entire locker room annually. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. like something you, if you avoid it, you're lucky because you get an extra four points over the teams that didn't. Um, so it's a it's an interesting sort of thing that teams have always been conscious of, I think, cognizant of. Um, and yet, you know, it, it's still changed in terms of when a guy is available and when they're not. It, it, the other thing that stood out to me um, from that availability was, you know, if I was uh, if I was penciling in the opening night lineup against Edmonton, I would have Brock Besser there right now. And, you know, as we've heard from from Boudreaux in the past, sometimes the doctors have different ideas than exactly what you want to see happen. And so that's ultimately where the decision will be made. But you could just hear Bruce Boudreaux really wants to have Brock Besser back. He really wants to have Besser in the lineup for that game. And, you know, even the question about, okay, he hasn't played a preseason game. Do you have to manage his minutes a little bit? And, you know, Boudreaux sounded like, look, we're going to give him every opportunity to step right into his normal role. If it doesn't go well, you can always shorten the bench. You can always do other things. But you have a guy who can beat the goalie, who can change the game at any point. And I thought I really, really got a sense of 
how Bruce Boudreaux values Brock Besser and the likelihood that he's going to be in there in Edmonton. I think if there's any, you know, from a health perspective, if it's at all reasonable, Boudreaux is going to find a way uh, to get him in there. That's what I took away. Well, and we also get the invocation of that one game, right? That yep. that game that I mean, we, did we talk about that last? I think week? we did that last that game week. Yeah, looms large. Um, you know, it's something. It's something this team. Like, I feel like I hear about that game a lot from this team is like a template, um, a template of what they feel they can be when things, you know, um, line up, like it, when they're playing what they feel is their game. That, that's what it looks like. And so, you know, I, I can't escape, but no, I, I can't escape without noting that that game has come up yet again, uh, something that I've talked about as like a template game for Boudreaux and this organization when they think about what they want this team to look like when they play. Yeah, and the other thing that stood out to me was, you know, asked about uh, Linus Carlson and, you know, the, the quote was, well, you just kind of on the defensive end, you hope he's not overwhelmed. You can hope you hope that he can hold his own defensively and then we'll be good in shape. But, I mean, he was using the word. It was hope, right? And that That's kind of what it comes down to. You're kind of crossing your fingers and saying, okay, let's see how this goes. And, you know, he's one of the guys that looks very much like a placeholder in the lineup right now. I, I would think if Brock Besser comes back that, you know, he takes that place with Pearson and Miller and maybe Hoaglander bumps down to play with Pedersen and Kuzmenko. Maybe Carlson isn't in there, but you never know. I mean, Carlson has been skating with those guys. It's a chance he's he could get in there. Again, it just really drives home how much they need guys forwards that you're not hoping they can handle their own defensively, right? They can they can hold their own defensively. And that's Brock Besser and that's Ilya Mikheyev. Two guys uh, whose availability is uncertain right now. I think Bruce Boudreaux reading between the lines a little bit there. He recognizes how much he needs those two-way guys. Not to say that Carlson can't help them in other ways, but whenever you're saying, you know what, you just kind of hope that he can hold his own defensively, that's a bit of a problem, especially when you're going up a team that has last change and has Leon Dreisaitl and Connor McDavid in the lineup. Well, and you know how I feel about hope, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> you love you it, know, right? You're a big fan. Yeah, big fan. <laughs> no, I, I am a big fan. I am a big fan of hope. It's just not a strategy. Yeah. And right? I, like that's, and that's I think my line. Bruce Boudreaux was stick with it. Like, I don't think Bruce Boudreaux was saying it was a strategy. You know what I mean? I think no. it was more of this is what I've been like. This is the hand I've been dealt, and I'm going to have to play it. But boy, would I love to have Besser and Mikheyev back, so I'm not relying on hope, right? For sure. And you know, I, anyway, I, I've been pretty impressed with Linus Carlson, but I do think if the Canucks have to use him uh, in a top nine role, um, you know, I, I think the seams will show pretty quickly there, right? But but you sometimes get a run of good games from a player in those circumstances. You sometimes get like the five games of adrenaline driven performance, uh, especially from a young guy. So, um, you know, probably not a, a huge deal if they end up in that spot in terms of, um, you know, the big picture and, and what they want to accomplish this year, but definitely not ideal if you're able to get a player of Besser's caliber into the lineup instead. Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. Final few minutes of the show. And, you know, earlier we were talking, Drancer, about how the forward group sets up. Is there ever a time where you have to move one of the big three centers back to the wing? Obviously, we all remember the lotto line, how much success they had together, something like that, another configuration where you move one of them to the wing uh, to really load up on that top six. 
This unsigned text comes in. Why think first, second, third line? Think a collective top nine mix with balance. Uh, special teams allows for stacking your top six forwards or shortening the bench when they need a goal late. And he says Pearson is fine with Miller. And, yeah, we had this talk last week. I don't really have a problem with Tanner Pearson playing with JT Miller because they have shown that chemistry. If, if that chemistry goes away, then, yes, you have to consider another option there. You can't just have Tanner Pearson stapled by default to that line with JT Miller. I think that kind of top nine with balance, I mean, the team has talked about that, right? That, oh, we don't really see it as first, second, and third line. That's the ideal. That's what they want to happen. It's just a question, and, and you know, to get back to hope being a strategy, I don't think it's necessarily hope, but it's just a question of, does everyone fulfill their end of the bargain, right? Do all of the, not just those centers, but the guys like Tanner Pearson who are being asked to play with them, you know, like maybe a Niels Hoagland or Andre Kuzmenko, et cetera, Ilya Mikheyev, go down the list. Do those guys keep up their end of the bargain? And you can actually have, you know, three viable, effective scoring lines that prevents you from having to load up, right? I think there's a reasonable bet that it will happen, but I also think it's fair to consider, well, if that doesn't happen, what does the forward mix uh, look like? What's your kind of plan B? That's how I would look at it. I'm not saying they don't have the depth to run it. It's just you have to be aware of the of the potential downside as well. I, I'm just skeptical more than anything about the like well-balanced top nine like there is no top line there's three top no there's a top line and it's the line that has two of the club's most reliable two-way wingers on it with when everyone's healthy right in Besser and Pearson with their top scoring centerman right like we know how much those guys played last year once they were put together they were definitively played in top line minutes um the fact that they organization came right back to them tells me that in fact this team does have a stratified top line and then a couple of middle six lines right like mm -hmm. very much very much so and everything we've seen usage wise everything we've seen in terms of Boudreaux's desire to unite that line again as quickly as possible um, matches that so you know I think until we see otherwise uh, you have to still view this team in a traditional frame even if you know, conceptually, you like the idea of this team having a balanced top nine. I just don't think it's likely to play out that way. Uh, and I think, you know, the burden of proof should be on the other side, right? Like the the top line thing is pretty clear to me. And I guess we'll see on Wednesday our first indication of exactly if that usage matches, um, you know, my strong expectation. Of yeah, that. that's going to be something to really keep an eye on is how the five on five time on ice in particular stacks up. Right. Because, you know, Bo Horvat, he's going to get his minutes on the power play. We'll see if he's a part of the penalty kill. We'll see how they use JT Miller there as well. Maybe they try to keep his minutes down as well. That's something that I don't necessarily have as, as good of a handle on uh, as some of the other deployment decisions that they have to make is how they're going to divvy out the penalty kill minutes at forward, but it is going to be a really important thing to keep an eye on, right? Who do they give those minutes to? Who do they lean on the most at five on five? And yeah, I see, I hear what you're saying about the, you know, yeah, they have a top line. Let's get real. They don't have three number one lines. I think the more important probably distinction is, you know, Pete, we get this talk uh, or this text or thought in a lot when we're talking about the Bo Horvat contract situation, right? And it's, oh, he's a third line center on this team, so you can't pay him. I think making that clear distinction between 
there's a second line, and that's a legit top six line, and then there's a third line, and that's your run-of-the-mill third line. That's where I have I, – I think it does make sense to just talk about kind of two equal middle six lines, and I would kind of expect – that they'll be deployed like that, right? Where you're not going to see a big minute discrepancy between those two middle six lines. If anything, you might see Horvat just because he's that matchup guy for them. You might see Horvat's line uh, play out more like the second line, right? Than uh, as opposed to Pedersen's line. Yeah, no, and I think that's an absolutely fair point. Like I would expect Bo Horvat to play top six minutes for this team, even if he takes line rushes on ostensibly third a line. third yeah. line. Yeah, in fact, I'd expect him to to flirt with top line minutes because of the way that his usage increases in bolt in leverage of all kinds, right? Like if it's a tied game and it's late in it, you want Bo Horvat on the ice, right? Like if you're holding a lead five on five, you want Bo Horvat on the ice. If you're chasing, you're probably going to try and get Bo Horvat more minutes. So like as leverage <laughs> increases late in games, uh, no matter what the situation is, Bo Horvat's going to see his usage tick up because he helps you win. Uh, very simple, right? So, you know, he, it's, it, I agree with that point per, for sure. I just think one, two, and three in terms of five on five ice time, I'm going to expect to be Pearson, Besser, mm -hmm. and Miller. And so when I talk about, you know, the fact that um, Miller's not an ideal uh, fit there, you know, that's what I'm talking about. Like, I'm talking about a world in which he does get more ice time than Elias Pettersson. Does that make sense, right? Like, is that something that helps you, you know, be the 100-plus point team that this team wants to be? Um, you know, I think that's a very fair question framed that way. Well, and the Pedersen one in particular, right? Because, you know, his his time on ice really hasn't increased in his time in the NHL. You know, like, I just looking at it now, in his rookie season, he played uh, just over 18 minutes, 18 minutes and 14 seconds a game. Last year was 18 minutes and 36 seconds a game. And that, that 18 and a half minutes is right where it's been uh, since his rookie season. And at a certain point... If he is the kind of all-world talent that I think he is, and that I think he can be for this team, you got to find a way to, you know, not have him playing the third most five-on-five -five minutes of any of your centers, right? You have to find a way to get him in those situations to impact the game. I think saying, you know, characterizing it as, oh, take the kid gloves off or whatever is maybe a little, a little too strong because they do use him in, in, you know, they they started to use him on the penalty kill. Obviously, he's a big part of the power play and all that, so he gets some of his minutes there, but. Just let him be a five-on-five -five beast. Like more than anything, that's what I'd like to see in terms of deployment. I know you have a lot of minutes to, uh, or a lot of mouths to feed in terms of minutes, right? A lot of guys you got to keep happy. But Patterson at his best should be the most impactful five-on-five -five center, most impactful five-on-five -five forward that this team has. And I think it's it's about time that they start playing him like that. Yeah, they they need to see what it looks like too, right? Like the time is now. He's not a pre-prime player anymore, right? He's smack dab in the middle of his prime. Yeah. It's definitely time like, to see what unleash can the do beast. You know what I mean? Let him let him be the weapon that he has the the capability of being. Rather than just talking about that potential, it's great that he has that potential, but let him show it. Let him go out there and do it. I, I, especially for a team that, you know, as we keep talking, they're on the bubble. They need to find the edge wherever they can. If you're talking about ways that they can outperform expectations, I would say giving a, a bigger role to Elias Pettersson and hoping that he thrives, hoping that he takes that jump, that's one of the the more feasible paths to getting towards uh, you know exceeding those expectations. Yeah, absolutely. It would if Pettersson can be as impactful two way in toughs, right, mm -hmm. um, as he is now offensively and two way, but in sort of a classic middle six deployment, like middle six minutes. Um, you know, that 
like significantly raises your ceiling as a hockey club and that you know the utility of that cannot be downplayed or ignored yeah and, and again just that idea of finding ways to raise the ceiling right finding ways to maybe increase your margin for error a little bit right where you're not so you know dependent mm. on Thatcher Demko that's going to be key and I will say you know the one thing that Bruce Boudreaux, we've talked a lot about it, right? He finds a way to get into the playoffs. He finds a way to win games in the regular season. A huge part of that is the fact that he tends to get really strong performances from his best players. And I think part of that, why he's able to consistently do that, is he just he recognizes who his best players are and he gives them the opportunities, right? He he's willing to rely on talent and bet on talent and you know, I think the clearest indication of that is the just power play one, which I know kind of predates his time here, but that's what it's going to be. It's going to be your best players out there on the ice, a willingness to use Bo Horvat and Elias Pettersson on the penalty kill. And that's what I want to see more of is just, okay, this, uh, Pettersson should be our best forward. He should step up into that role at some point in the near future here. Let's use him like that. And I think that is a hallmark of Bruce Boudreaux, the fact that he is willing to do that and willing to just rely on talent to win games. That, that That's something that I think is going to be really, really key uh, for him and the rest of the coaching staff this season. Yeah, and, and that's in terms of deployment, right? Like Bruce Boudreaux doesn't let, or do, not doesn't let, but doesn't rely on specialization. No. Right? Like he simply plays his best as much as he can. And, you know, that absolutely can work but it helps when your best can do it all and in Pedersen's case you know we have no doubt that he can like his anticipation of like without the puck is through the roof right there's every indication to believe that he's a willing shot shot blocker right that he works hard defensively that he can do absolutely everything you want it's just we haven't seen it, right? It's just a matter of of seeing it. Now, I say this about Besser all the time, too, and sometimes the text message inbox gets mad at me. Like, I think the world of Besser's ability is a two-way player, too. I just think he's really smart, and he wins enough puck battles that he's a defensive plus for this team, uh, game in, game out. So they have some of these, like, top offensive guys who can do more in more situations. They helped fix the penalty kill last year. Yeah. It was one of the reasons that Boudreaux's impact was so significant was that he really did turn the club's fortunes in in all phases of the game over to these young guys um will that process accelerate in Boudreaux's first complete season that's a fascinating subplot to watch and and you know again in terms of giving this team more upside than the 90 to 98 point sort of fat part of the bell curve we've mostly discussed like, that would do more to accomplish it than just about anything else this team could possibly do. It feels like that process has to accelerate. Just the logic of, to a certain extent, doubling down and locking into this core, I don't know how you do that if you don't believe there is still untapped ceiling from guys like Elias Pettersson and Quinn Hughes and even Brock Besser, who you extended, right, to, to a deal with a little bit of term this summer. I, I don't get the logic of doing that and then not asking them to step up and playing a bigger role, not relying on them, not turning the team over uh, to a certain extent on them, right? Like, if if you had the confidence to not just keep this core around but actually add to it with Ilya Mikheyev and, and try to push for the playoffs this year, to me, logically, that means you have to have a certain amount of confidence for some of these other guys to really step up and uh, and push the limit a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to some extent, this team will go as far as – the, their best players take them right 
You you do need depth. You do need a better blue line. But there is enough high-end talent to carry this team pretty far, right? And by pretty far, I mean certainly to third in the Pacific and, and a playoff spot. Now, you know, I also think you have to be careful. Like, one thing I think about a lot is wanting to have an environment. And, and what I mean by environment is, like, infrastructure. Okay. Wanting to have enough infrastructure on your team that you're able to evaluate the players you have right it's one thing we talked about a lot last year when Boudreaux came in right can you create an environment where the pressure is just off right like where where everyone can breathe a bit so that you can as a new management group take the time and really make cold rational decisions about where you are as a team right and Boudreaux did that Boudreaux accomplished that in spades and then some he, he may have accomplished it too well and made evaluating this group harder <laughs> because of how much success he had um you know he made the vibes too good well well i just i think we're in a really he did he did the vibes were amazing immaculate right um, incredible now now i think that still applies this year because one thing you always have to be doing and they're structurally set up to do this anyway because Pedersen's on a bridge. But, you know, the question now for this team, especially now that Pedersen and Hughes are, for the first time ever, playing, going to play through a season where they're both in their primes, yeah. their statistical primes, right? Can these guys be your best skaters on a championship team, right? Like, that's the that's the standard now which by which the organization has to make decisions. Um, Merrick talked about it earlier on this program, right? The idea of that window, Um do the Canucks have enough good infrastructure around them? Is the defense core good enough? Is there enough depth here that you can get that answer, right? I think there is. Like, I think there is enough here at this point that it's kind of incumbent on Vancouver's best to put them over the top this season. And we'll learn a lot about what they're capable of uh, over the course of the next 82. Uh, I suspect big things from both. Like, I, I would expect big things from both. I suspect mm -hmm. they're capable of doing it. And... You know, that's going to be sort of the big question here is is can they do it? And what does that mean if they can or can't? Right. Uh, something I'd imagine we'll talk about ad nauseum <laughs> once the season gets underway. This We're Wednesday. so close. We're so close to the season uh, getting under the way on Wednesday. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of Canucks Talk. Bick Nazar flying solo on the people shows up next. It's the home of the Canucks Sportsnet 650.